0: Today's episode is sponsored by Action Heat, makers of the world's best battery heated clothing. It's heat on demand with the touch of a button so you can control your personal environment. If you've ever sat in a car with heated car seats, then you've got the basic idea of how they work. I've been getting plenty of use out of my Action Heat base layer shirt, going on my regular walks that I take, doing all my listening research for the show, but they have lots more than that on offer, including jackets, socks, gloves, hats, and long johns. As a special deal for our listeners, you can save 20% off your entire order by going to actionheat.com/best to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's actionheat.com/best, or use the coupon code BEST at checkout to save 20%. Stay toasty warm while you enjoy all your outdoor activities this winter with Action Heat. And now. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the election of a true neo-fascist to be president of Brazil and some of the economic and political realities that led us to this point. Clips today come from Counterspin, Radio Who, What, Why, Democracy Now!, and a TED Talk from Juanice Cabaj.
1: Jair Bolsonaro, the new president of Brazil, has promised to unleash a wave of violence on the working class, minorities, and the left. An army officer during Brazil's fascist military dictatorship, about which he maintains that its only error was not killing enough people, Bolsonaro told his supporters to shoot every Workers' Party supporter in Acre State in September. As Alan McLeod notes for FAIR.org, at a presidential rally, Bolsonaro declared, quote, these red outlaws will be banished from our homeland. It will be a cleanup the likes of which has never been seen in Brazilian history. Either they go overseas or they go to jail. Close quote. Bolsonaro has declared himself in favor of torture, and dictatorship, and carte blanche for police killing. He told a Congress member he wouldn't rape her because she didn't deserve it, and said that gay children should be beaten. During the 2016 impeachment of Workers' Party President Dilma Rousseff, who was tortured by the dictatorship, Bolsonaro dedicated his impeachment vote to the colonel who tortured her. Bolsonaro's economic plans include cuts to pensions, a fire sale of state assets, and opening up the country's vast natural resources for foreign exploitation. The view of U.S. financial markets and their uncritical mouthpiece, the financial press, McLeod reports, has been clear. Before the election, the Financial Times and CNBC both reported that the markets were cheering Bolsonaro's lead in the presidential race with a follow-up Financial Times piece noting weapons companies surging stocks under his emergence as the frontrunner, a trend mirrored by stocks more generally as his performance, quote, heartened investors, close quote. Brazil's markets have surged on hope of Bolsonaro victory. Can he deliver? Ran a New York Times headline, by which it meant deliver on promises to gut Social Security. The CBC explored the new world of possibilities for profits for Canadian corporations in agriculture, extractive sectors, and finance, as Bolsonaro promises to slash environmental regulations and virtually all market restrictions. It could be a good time to be a mining investor in Brazil, the CBC reported. The Wall Street Journal went the furthest. Its editorial board endorsed Bolsonaro as a credible reformer. Describing him as an antidote to the greed of opponent Fernando Haddad's Workers' Party. It also made the claim that the election was, quote, transparent, competitive, and fair, close quote. Truly remarkable, considering Bolsonaro is widely accused of illegally employing foreign companies to create a massive fake news industry via WhatsApp, and that former leftist president Lula da Silva by far the most popular candidate, had been jailed on questionable charges and barred from running. So what can you say? Faced with the choice of center-left reformers who might tax business slightly more and outright fascists, the financial press showed who they serve and who they are. They're not interested in the human cost of Bolsonaro's near-genocidal statements, the cost to the population if pensions are gutted and state assets sold off, the cost to the Amazon, a crucial carbon reserve that has to be maintained and strengthened if humanity has any chance of mitigating the catastrophe of climate change. These, we conclude, are mere externalities. When it comes to opportunities for profit, nothing else matters. Readers and viewers, take note.
2: Is it a failure of globalism or is it a failure of leaders to sell the benefits and the reality of globalism?
3: Well, I mean, you could argue it's both, right? I mean, it's not the failure of globalization. I mean, the economic process works. You've created an enormous amount of wealth. You've brought a global middle class into being, um, and you've reduced the price of goods. So globalization does as it works as promised. But globalism was is a political Right. uh, Failure. It it is the failure of leaders and their institutions, the failure of the structure. I don't want to give it just to leaders because you have to recognize that when you have a system where it's taking 18 months to run an election and it costs billions of dollars and you have massive private interest and special interest lobbies that are able to ensure um, that, you know, big changes in in policies just can't happen. You know, the AARP and big pharma makes big changes in healthcare and affordability of drugs, just not on the agenda, right? Is that, is that a failure just of leaders? I'd like to have more courageous and strong leaders, but I think it's broader than that.
2: Is it a systemic failure in that the kind of democracy that we have been operating under, the kind of system we've been operating under, simply is inconsistent with, doesn't work with, a globalized structure?
3: Uh, It certainly doesn't work with a globalized structure when technology is added to the mix, right? That's the piece that I think really frightens me because in the last five years, We've seen um, that the media no longer functions for civic democracy. It's become something that's really dividing people um, because it's all about advertising to people only the information they like. And far more people are going to get displaced by technology, big data, automation, artificial intelligence than were ever displaced by globalization and jobs moving to China. So I worry that our existing political institutions are not quite up to the task of what we need to do to make it work for the average American, European, Canadian, Australian, you name it.
2: Right. I was gonna say, it's not just our political institutions, but really it's the, the political institutions of the West of liberal democracy.
3: That's right. Because I think Americans seem to think there's something about the United States that's particularly toxic. And that's why we got Trump. Just not true. I mean, we got Brexit in the UK with exactly the same kind of voter base, people that didn't want to hear facts from, you know, their political leaders, their business leaders, their media, because they felt like they'd been lied to for decades. And so they just didn't trust those institutions anymore. That's exactly why you got the German elections against Merkel. It's why the Italians just voted all the establishment out, by far the most anti-establishment votes since World War II. It's why Macron almost lost in the first round and had to get rid of his established parties to be able to win as president. The only advanced industrial democracy in the world that is not having this problem is Japan. Japan. And it's really interesting. The population is shrinking, right, which means that uh, the average Japanese, even though the economy is not growing, is doing much better per capita. uh, They don't accept any immigrants, and their military is constitutionally forbidden from actually fighting abroad. So in other words, the one country that doesn't have a problem with globalism is the one country that rejected globalism.
2: (laughs) Well, it's also in part with Japan that the population is it's such a homogeneous population, and that it's really hard to find some some other quote unquote to blame
3: well as I said, no immigrants right, right. right? I mean, you can't be upset with immigration. If there ain't no immigrants. I mean, people have been telling the Japanese for decades, you're not growing, you need to bring in you know, cheaper labor from Southeast Asia. And the Japanese have consistently said, no, we won't do it. We'll accept lower growth, but we're going to maintain our homogeneity. And you know, you've know, you seen in Scandinavia, these are countries that everyone thought were the paragons of social democracy, liberal democracy. Suddenly they bring in huge numbers of migrants from places like Iraq, and then they start voting for political parties that feel like the national front in France. And, you know, that's not social democracy.
2: The argument that globalization, both as an economic and a political institution, has been good for the world, that it has brought down crime, that it has created huge middle classes in in many parts of the world, including China and India, most notably – is there any value to people understanding that argument?
3: Um, yeah, of course there is. But you can't give them that argument um, in in the abstract when they're suffering from um, an unprecedented opioid crisis. Um, or when their educational system isn't good enough to get them a functional job and when their factories have closed down. It just doesn't work. I mean, I grew up in the projects and, you know, my mother read the National Enquirer every week, brought it home. She's a smart woman. She wasn't an educated woman. She dropped out of high school, but she understood a much more fundamental truth than globalization is creating a lot of cash, which is screw all this globalization, um, what about my kids? And no one's going to take care of my kids unless I get something done. I need to lie, cheat, and steal, but I'll do that to get, to get an opportunity for my kids. And, and I, I think that if she were alive today, she would have voted for Trump. My brother did. Um, and I didn't grow up with any capitalists because no one in the projects had any capital. And I, I just don't think that you can convince people in my community that globalization is something they should vote for unless the people that are making all the money off globalization start actually caring about them.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the sock company making the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. And these socks are chock-full of features from their honeycomb arch support system to the cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness. Not to mention, Bombas' stay-up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark, and the super-soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. Of particular interest for those of us who try to shop ethically, Bombas is a certified B corporation, which is sort of like fair trade or certified organic, but for corporate business practices and their impact on workers, suppliers, the community, and the environment. Which is to say that doing good is written right into the fabric of the company. Most famously, for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need, because socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, but it's rare that anyone thinks to donate them, so Bombas stepped in to fill that gap. So to support their mission and get 20% off your first order, go to bombas.com slash left and use the code LEFT at checkout. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot slash LEFT, offer code LEFT, and you'll get 20% off your first order.
4: Glenn, while people protested in the streets as his victory was announced, 55 percent of Brazilians—and you can explain who votes and who doesn't—voted for this far-right former army official.
5: Exactly, and I think that's a critical point. Um, It is true that Bolsonaro won— Wealthier neighborhoods, uh, predominantly white regions of the country. So the upper class was absolutely, at least in the second round, supportive of Bolsonaro. He wasn't the primary choice of the establishment in the first round. But in the second round, they were behind him. But Brazil is a country with massive inequality and a tiny percentage of its population is rich. So the only way you win 55 percent of the vote in a country where voting is mandatory is if you also win a huge number of people who are anything but rich and anything but white and anything but ensconced in safe enclaves. Um, so I think that it's very important to avoid the storyline that fascism won because rich white people uh, got behind it. They did get behind it, but a huge number of other people got behind it or else he wouldn't have won. And the reason they got behind it is not necessarily because they support fascism. A lot of them have spent the last 16 years voting for the center-left Workers' Party. It's because they feel like the ruling class of Brazil, which includes not only the oligarchical class, but also the center-left establishment of PT that has governed the country for 14 years, has turned their backs on them and failed them. And when that happens, when enough people in the country perceive that the ruling and establishment class do not care about their futures and don't care about their welfare. They're going to run into the arms of demagogues who rightly or wrongly, accurately or inaccurately are portraying themselves as outsiders to that system and are threatening to burn it down. And that's the lesson of Brazil, but also of the U.S. and, 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 and Europe, European democracies as well that we are very reluctant to embrace. Mm.
4: Can you describe what the jailing of Lula, the previous president, well, before Jomo Rousseff, who also was impeached, his successor, what this meant, since he was the front-running presidential candidate, but then was jailed?
5: So, Lula is obviously a singular political force. There's almost nobody like him even in the entire democratic world, when it comes to charisma and the ability to connect with people on a visceral level, there's certainly no leftist leader anywhere in the world like him. And so the project of Brazilian elites for the last three or four years has been to destroy PT and finally remove them from power because they thought they were gonna get this center-right, banker-friendly party and candidate in their place. It all backfired terribly. But that plan could only work if Lula was banned from running. The only way you could ban Lula from running is if you quickly imprisoned him on conviction charges and then upheld that conviction in a very fast and dubious way, which is what happened. So Lula's imprisonment was done under very questionable circumstances, to put that mildly. It was obviously carried out with the intention to bar him from running. And it is true that public opinion polls showed him as the front runner. I think we should be cautious, though, about assuming that had Lula been able to run, he would have won. It's certainly possible, but even those early polls, um, showed him at 35, 38%. Um, a lot of these polls showed early on that Bolsonaro was very, very low in the polls at 20%, not really able to get over that. I think it's very possible that the, climate of the country was such that they were going to reject anyone associated enough with the old political system, even Lula. But certainly just because of his personal charisma and connection to the populace and the popularity that he had because of his success, he was by far the candidate most likely to win from the left, which is why, for sure, they ended up imprisoning and barring his candidacy.
4: I'd like to turn to comments Bolsonaro made earlier this month, speaking to a crowd of supporters through his cell phone when he pledged a cleansing never seen before.
6: We are the majority. We will build a new nation. They lost in 2016. And they will lose again next week. Only the cleansing will now be much wider. Either they leave or go to jail. These red outcasts will be banished from our homeland. And Lula da Silva, you're going to rot in jail. Wait for Hadaj to get there too. Since you love each other so much. You're going to rot in jail. It will be a cleansing never seen before in Brazilian history. You will see proud armed forces, a civilian and a military police, with legal backing to enforce the law against you.
7: Bandidos do MST.
6: CRIMINALS FROM THE LANDLESS WORKERS MOVEMENT. Do CRIMINALS OF THE HOMELESS WORKERS MOVEMENT. YOUR ACTIONS
4: Serão WILL
6: BE TYPIFIED AS TERRORISM.
4: So that is Jair Bolsonaro. Right before this election, talk about the significance of what he is, uh, what he means by this cleansing and the military and the police going after. And for those who aren't familiar around the world, the landless movement, the workers party, et cetera, Glenn.
5: Yeah, so I hope nobody needs me to explain how terrifying that language is. It. it I mean, I wasn't personally surprised by it, but a lot of people who had declared their neutrality... I'm talking about prominent, influential people in Brazil who have long been in the center or even the center right and hate PT were so alarmed by that unhinged rhetoric that they actually declared their support for PT saying, I never thought that I would do this ever in my life, but I'm voting for PT because although PT has robbed me for the last 15 years, they've never threatened me this way. So, as I said in the first part of the show, what's not being fully appreciated about Bolsonaro is that he's not part of this newer alt-right movement, but instead comes from the military regime that ruled the country for 21 years during the Cold War and carried out, like all of these far-right anti-communist regimes did, atrocities that they thought were justified in the name of fighting communism. And there's a really moving And remarkable op-ed in this morning's New York Times that I would encourage all of your viewers to read by a Brazilian writer named Marcelo Hubens, whose father during the dictatorship was an elected member of Congress, a socialist, not a communist, but a socialist. And when the military junta took over Brazil with the help of the U.S. and the U.K., they simply canceled his mandate in Congress. They removed him from Congress. And then one day, a couple of years later, they came to his house, arrested him, his wife and his 15 year old daughter in front of their three small children, took them to where people were tortured and they never saw. Their father, again, he was tortured to death over the next 48 hours. Um, Those are the kinds of atrocities that were committed by the very people that Bolsonaro, who are still alive today, and that Bolsonaro intends to empower and who he explicitly wants to replicate. So, again, it's hard to put into words the kinds of threats that are opposed to basic human rights and the right of dissent and democratic values, as he made very clear in that speech that you just played. Mm.
4: Brazil's dictatorship ended in 1985. Do you think Brazil's Congress, the legislature, the Supreme Court are strong enough to keep him in check, or even to survive?
5: I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. Um, First of all, the Congress, it's important to point out has been flooded with the far right movement of which Bolsonaro was a part. People that no one had ever heard of two months ago were swept into office by virtue of nothing other than affiliating themselves with Bolsonaro. So he has huge support in the Congress for whatever it is he wants to do. The question of the court, his son got caught on tape just three months ago. It was just released and found in the last week when he was asked what he would do if the Supreme Court tried to impede his father's ascension to power or his agenda basically said, well, we could just send a tank and an army to outside of the Supreme Court. And I don't think anyone's going to go into the street in support of the Supreme Court So the only faction that can really impose limits on Bolsonaro is the military. And that is the big looming question is, on the one hand, you have a military that obviously ran the country under the dictatorship and is still connected to the people who did it. On the other hand, they have had three decades of being inculcated with the idea that their principal patriotic duty is to defend democracy and the Constitution from anyone who might threaten it. And so they're now definitely consolidated behind Bolsonaro. For a long time, they hated Bolsonaro because they thought that he made the military look bad when they were trying to rehabilitate their reputation. They're now united behind him. But that is the big mystery is to what extent. Will the military kind of be a backstop protecting democracy in the Constitution against Bolsonaro, the way, say, the Turkish army used to do before Erdogan um, when it came to protecting Turkish democracy? That's the, the question no one knows the answer to. And
4: Glenn, what role did both social media play and also the stabbing of Bolsonaro? What effect did that have?
5: Social media played an enormous role in for in this country in Brazil for a long time. The corporate media was even more dominant than it was, say, in the U.S. in the 1980s, and the 1990s, before the proliferation of cable news and the Internet. The all of the information was centralized in the hands of a tiny number of television outlets owned by the same four or five rich families that had the same political ideology. It was impossible to win the election without their support. They didn't support Bolsonaro, at least from the beginning. He really was a candidate of the Internet. He was created and driven, his movement was, by young people who were very Internet savvy. They circumvented the establishment media institutions. They used WhatsApp, the um, Facebook-owned free telephone communication service, uh, to spread all kinds of mass information, much of which were just outright lies about PT and about Bolsonaro. So their ability to exploit these new means of communication to disseminate their messaging, but also lies, was a huge part of why he won. Um, And the stabbing of Bolsonaro, which really came very close to killing him, had he arrived at the hospital two minutes earlier, he would have been dead. Created a huge amount of sympathy for him. It's sympath- it humanized him as a victim um, and it also made it impossible to attack him for almost a full month because it's very hard to attack somebody who is in a hospital bed with tubes connected to them. Um, and so it created a vacuum where he was kind of just seen as this humanized victim who you felt sorry for um, and who also seemed to be a victim of the violent crime that he had spent his whole campaign <laughs> denouncing. Um, it gave him the excuse to avoid all political debates. And so he was never really forced to defend the types of things that he has been advocating or the things that he said. And um, obviously, we'll never know what would have happened had he not been stabbed. But there's no question that ended up being a huge help to him.
4: Do you see his victory as part of what's happening in Latin America? You have the um, right wing electoral victories in Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Paraguay, Peru. um, uh, And then, you know, globally as well, um, including places like Hungary. With Orden.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, politics is, is really no longer domestic. Politics is regional and politics is global. It's in part because we live in a globalized world and it's in part because the Internet is so pervasive in places where until very recently it didn't exist. And so ideologies that thrive in the most powerful and richest countries in the world in the U.S. and Canada and Western Europe now infiltrate much more easily. Um, into places that had previously been immune to them. So I absolutely see what's happening in Brazil in one sense as being the byproduct of unique Brazilian dynamics, the convergence of these multiple scandals in a way that really doesn't exist elsewhere. But I see it more so as part of a regional and global trend um, that has a lot of the dynamics that we already discussed. But I want to add to that the fact that I do think that the left needs to ask itself why it is increasingly failing to be able to communicate to and provide answers for the fears and the anxieties and the resentments that huge portions of the population who are not really ideologically entrenched on the right um, are harboring. Um, and I think that is a major question that the Brazilian left needs to ask itself, but also the Western left, which is why is it that the people who live in the interior, who are economically repressed, who feel unrepresented by the power structure, why are they turning away from the left, which sees itself as representing those kind of people who are marginalized and economically, um, mar- and economically repressed and turning instead to this kind of nationalistic populist right? The instinct is just to call those people names, to accuse them of xenophobia and racism and misogyny. A lot of that may be true in a lot of cases, but there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that that kind of soul searching needs to be done on the left. um, If any of these dynamics that are obviously disturbing are to, to be stemmed and
0: then reversed. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they have revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madisonreed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madisonreed.com, and use the promo code
1: LEFT. Looking back at the recent Brazilian election, it's hard not to focus on Jair Bolsonaro himself with his defense of a brutal dictatorship and his encouragement of violence against perceived others. But journalists should spare some critical attention for the election itself, which saw the leading candidate, former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva of the PT, or Workers' Party, jailed and bumped from the race under circumstances that warrant more attention than U.S. media have seen fit to provide. You may have heard that Bolsonaro is a Trump admirer, but the relationship between anti-democracy in Brazil and the U.S., Goes well beyond that. Here to help us understand some of this is Brian Meir. He's an editor at Brazil Wire and editor of the book Voices of the Brazilian Left. He's a regular correspondent for the radio show This Is Hell, as well as a freelance writer and producer. He joins us now by phone from Sao Paulo. Welcome to Counterspin, Brian Meir. Hi, how are you? Well, when twice-elected Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff was being pushed out in what many called a legislative coup... U.S. readers weren't reading quotes from the Organization of American States, for example, that was saying that this was not kosher, nor were they hearing about the objections of neighboring countries, some of whom pulled their ambassadors in protest, except perhaps via headlines like USA Today's leftist leaders leap to defense of ousted Brazilian president. So U.S. readers were set up kind of weirdly for this election Corruption was associated, if vaguely, with Dilma. And then when her successor, Michel Temer, was clearly embroiled in stuff, Brazil was dismissed, as the New York Times put it, as just a, quote, turmoil-prone nation, close quote. So then with the election itself, I mean, we heard about it. But the big picture problems with it, like the leading candidate being in jail, were treated as externalities. What do you think that U.S. listeners should know about the Brazilian election? What complicates the idea that Bolsonaro is a simple expression of what Brazilians want?
8: Well, I guess the main point is that the leading candidate was arrested as part of a U.S. Cooperative anti corruption investigation between the US Department of Justice and the Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office. Now, he was arrested with no material evidence. And the main beneficiaries of the fact that he and the PT party were removed from the race this year are American corporations. And so I think that Americans should know that their government, their corporations, had a hand in what's happening down here and had a hand in the return to fascism. And I guess the second point is just that Bolsonaro is not the Brazilian Trump. He shouldn't be normalized. Some Americans might think, well, Trump's terrible, but, you know, the United States hasn't crashed and burned since he took office. So. Bolsonaro come to office in Brazil probably won't be that big of a deal either, but it's not the case. He's not a Brazilian Trump. He's a fascist. He's, you know, Trump may say some things that are fascist, but Jair Bolsonaro is literally a former official from a neo-fascist military government, you know, that ruled as a state of exception. They used to, for example, categorize all people as workers or bums. So if you were walking down the street, Unable to prove to a policeman that you had a job through showing documentation proving that you would get arrested during the dictatorship. That's not something that's happening under Trump. Brazil under Bolsonaro won't be like the US under Trump. It will be more repressive.
1: Just want to ask you one other question about Lula because I think people had heard that Lula da Silva was in jail, but I think they might not understand. How that happened. And for example, a Washington Post news story I was quoting before from an op ed and analysis piece, but in their, you know, straight news story, the Washington Post said that Lula's, quote, re-election bid was upended when he landed in jail this year on corruption charges, close quote. There are very particular factors about Lula not just being in jail, but not being able to run from jail.
8: Well, yeah, exactly. The coverage has been really misleading. It's unfortunate. What especially bothers me is the way it's misleading in publications that have progressive readers. I mean, I can understand Fox News or something giving misleading, slanted coverage against Lula because he's a leftist, but it's very frustrating to see Washington Post, New York Times, NPR run this innuendo and these. Semi truths and mistruths about why Lula was arrested. The fact is that he was convicted of committing undetermined acts. The judge, Sergio Moro, who's the leader of this US Department of Justice, Brazilian public prosecutors, joint operation called Operation Car Wash, was allowed to rule on his own investigation with no jury in eccentric Brazilian legal tradition, which goes back to the Inquisition. His literal title is that of inquisitor. He set up the investigation, and he was allowed to judge on his own multi-year investigation. Okay, And the, the ruling was that they could not define any specific act of corruption that Lula committed. First, they accused him of being involved in Petrobras Petroleum Company corruption. That charge was removed from the court case two years ago. The day Lula was arrested, the guardian said that his arrest was connected to Petrobras corruption, which is erroneous. It was not. In fact, the judge said that specifically there was no Petrobras connection in the ruling. His corruption charges were connected to supposed illegal reforms in a beachfront apartment. The courts were unable to prove that Lula ever owned the apartment. The apartment is registered in the name of the building company that built the building. They were unable to prove that he ever visited the apartment, and they were unable to prove that any reforms actually took place. Nevertheless, even if he had received a free apartment and gotten these reforms that clearly didn't happen because they've taken pictures inside the apartment, it's a mess, even if that had happened, the date that they alleged this all took place was after he left office. So there was no way of proving prid quo pro. Furthermore, the case is handled in Curitiba, Paraná, a neighboring state in a local court which has no jurisdiction in the town where the apartment exists. So it's just full of improprieties. And I feel like what you see these days with a lot of journalism is it's almost just like PR that they repeat in a lot of papers when they talk about foreign news. I didn't see any journalist for a major American newspaper do any kind of investigative work on this, weighing the merits of the case against Lula or not. They just kept repeating what the prosecution was saying the whole time. And the ironic thing is it's not even the first time that a former Brazilian president has had his life destroyed over phony allegations involving reforms on an apartment. Because when the military dictatorship took office in 1964, the media spent a year and a half accusing former president Juscelino Kubitschek, who was still very popular at the time, of having received illegal reforms on a luxury apartment in Ipanema. And after a year and a half, it came out that he was never the owner of the apartment. So they didn't even invent an original way to arrest Lula.
1: Well, and you're right, of course, that in U.S. reporting on the election, that was to say underexplored is to, is to say too little. We saw phrases as the, like in that Washington Post story, well, Lula landed in jail and there was definitely assumption that he deserved to be there, you know, um, and, and that should not be factored in when we were thinking about what would happen with the election. Well, another thing that, uh, I was surprised by was in a Washington Post news story, It was really focused about Bolsonaro's social media-centered campaign. You know, he overcame challenges with the power of social media, speaking directly to voters. We were told that backers became voracious consumers of his missives on Twitter and WhatsApp where we're told white men and wealthy voters eager to turn the page after a decade of left-wing rule rallied to Bolsonaro's side. This Washington Post piece had space for how Bolsonaro grew up a nerdy kid in a German-Italian family, but they didn't have any mention of the slush fund, which other accounts have led me to understand was reportedly used to fund this social media campaign that the Post is profiling, and that was also super hateful, was it, was it not?
8: Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, first of all, start from the starting point that when Lula was removed from the presidential race illegally against the orders of the UN Human Rights Committee, which are legally binding in Brazil, because Brazil signed the second optional protocol on political and civil rights, the UN, When Lula was pulled out of the race, he'd been behind bars for two and a half months in solitary confinement, prohibited from speaking to the press. And he still had more. He was polling higher than every other candidate combined in the polls. He had more than double the support of Bolsonaro when he was removed from the race a month before the election. Okay, so then you look at what Bolsonaro did. Steve Bannon apparently was helping a little bit with this. They set up an illegal campaign slush fund that had over four times the monetary value in it as Bolsonaro's entire official campaign fund. And they used it to illegally obtain personal data on targeted segments of WhatsApp users. Brazil is the biggest consumer of this WhatsApp WhatsApp, social media app in the world. Over half of all Brazilians use it. And so they created thousands and thousands of WhatsApp groups of 256 people each, specifically targeted to certain demographics, like evangelical Christian women, for example. And they just bombarded them with slander and hate speech. Okay, so for example, there was a poll that came out that said 87% of the people who voted for Bolsonaro believe... That when the PT party was in power, they created a gay kit and distributed it in the public school system to try to convince children to become homosexuals. 87 percent. Okay. they were spreading information that Fernando Haddad, who was Lula's replacement candidate, was a child molester. They said that if Haddad was elected, the government was going to create a kind of panel that would declare whether children were gay or not at the age of five. And these they bombarded evangelical Christians with this. And so the main reason that Bolsonaro was elected was because 87% of his voters thought that Fernando Haddad's government would try to make their children gay, you know, because their brains are just fried by this illegal use of social media apps. Just like in the U.S., you have all these Americans now who think the earth is flat. You know, it's like this this kind of thing. So it, it, it's hardly, as they're saying in the media, oh, Brazilians are worried about violence. Brazilians, you know, they're worried about corruption. That wasn't it. It was straight up, you know, homophobia was like the main social media factor in, in getting Bolsonaro elected. But another thing they did was, I don't know if you saw these not him protests that, were, that happened all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. On the day of those protests, Bolsonaro's people took these photos from slut walk protests that happened, you know, a year earlier of, you know, how slut walk is topless women, women in lingerie kissing and stuff like that. And they bombarded millions of Brazilians with images from slut walk saying that they, these were live photos taken in the not him protests. And so uh, immediately after this, After the Not Him protests, which were huge protests, also underreported in the media, there was at least a million people on the streets in Brazil, 150,000 in Sao Paulo alone. And American newspapers were saying tens of thousands of people nationwide, right? Huge protests. After they ended, Bolsonaro gained five percentage points in the polls with women because they bombarded evangelical Christian women with these slutwalk photos.
1: So there's a lot missing um from U.S. media coverage of the election itself. But then what was in it was, in some cases, just, I mean, just craven is the word that comes to mind. We talked a couple of weeks back on the show about U.S financial media kind of the business pages you know the new york times had a story in the business section brazil's markets have surged on hope of bolsonaro victory can he deliver and the concern in that time story was that uh, bolsonaro might not actually follow through on his plans to cut pensions you know and to cut social security though they said markets are optimistic um there's at least a kind of frankness in that business reporting you know that straight up says we don't care about fascism as long as, you know, the bottom line is, is happy. But straight news pieces tend to kind of take that investor point of view, but then they try to retrofit some kind of democratic principle, uh, in there. And so you certainly wouldn't get a sense of U.S. involvement, U.S. meddling in Brazilian politics, which you're talking about this time around. It's certainly not the first time, uh, in terms of U.S., um, meddling there.
8: Yeah, of course not. In fact, I mean, let's be frank. There's there aren't really any countries in Latin America that the U.S. doesn't meddle in. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, there there was a Harvard Review article published in the '90s which counted 44 U.S.-backed coups in Latin America between 1898 and 1994. And so we we're in a situation where the U.S. was involved in the 1964 coup in Brazil and actively supported the dictatorship, which lasted until 1985, Bolsonaro was a member of that government, and he's appointing three former generals who were also active during the dictatorship to cabinet positions. I mean, that alone shows there's a, at the very least a hangover right. of U.S. meddling in this current situation.
7: So two weeks ago, I searched the word nationalist on Twitter. The results were quite colorful, with expressions like emboldened racist moron, (laughs) white supremacist idiot, fascist sock puppets, (laughs) Orwellian, Hitlerian, terrifying. I then searched the word globalist, and got things like socialist (laughs) sellouts, disgusting corporate propaganda, elitist financial overlords, rootless cosmopolitan rats. (laughs) Even by social media standards, the words are cruel and disgusting, but they reflect the intensity of one of the most fundamental questions of our times. Nationalism or globalism? What is the best path forward? This question impacts everything we care about. Our cultural identity, uh, our prosperity, our political systems, uh, everything, the health of our planet, everything. So, on the one hand, we have nationalism. Collins defines it as a devotion to one's nation, but also a doctrine that puts national interests above international considerations. For nationalists, our modern societies are are built on national grounds. We share a land, a history, a culture, and we defend each other. In a big and chaotic world, they see nationalism as the only sensible way to maintain social stability. But alarmed globalists warn us, self-centered nationalism can easily turn ugly. We've seen it with 20th century fascisms, bloody wars, millions of deaths, immeasurable destructions. On the other hand, we have globalism. The Oxford Living Dictionary defines it as the operation or planning of economic and foreign policy on a global basis. For nationalists, globalism is rapidly deconstructing what our ancestors took decades to build, It's like spitting on our soldiers' tombs. It's eroding our national solidarities and opening the doors to foreign invasions. But globalists make the case that reinforcing our global governance is the only way to tackle big supranational problems like nuclear nuclear proliferation, the global refugee crisis, climate change, uh, or terrorism, or even the consequences of superhuman AI. So we are at the crossroads, and we are asked to choose nationalism or globalism. Having lived in four continents, I've always been interested in this question. But it took a whole new level when I saw this happening. The biggest surge in nationalist votes in Western democracies since World War II. All of a sudden, this isn't theory anymore. I mean, these political movements have built their success with ideas that could mean down the road losing my French citizenship because I'm North African, or not being able to come back home to the US because I come from a Muslim-majority country. You know, when you live in a democracy, you live with this idea that your government will always protect you as long as you abide by the laws. With the rise of national populism, despite being the best citizen I can, I now have to live with the idea that my government can hurt me for reasons reason I cannot control. It's very unsettling. But it forced me to rethink and rethink this question and, and try to think deeper. And the more I thought about it, the more I started questioning the question, why would we have to choose between nationalism and globalism, between loving our country and, and caring for the world? There's no reason for that. We don't have to choose between family and country. Or region or religion and country. You already have multiple identities and we live them, we live with them very well. Why would we have to choose between country and world? What if instead of accepting this absurd choice, we took it on ourselves to fight this dangerous binary thinking? So for all the globalists in the, in, in the audience, I want to ask, when I say the word nationalist, what image comes to your mind? Something like this. Believe me, I think of that too. But I'd like you to remember that for most people, nationalism feels more like this, or maybe like that. You know, it's that thing inside you when you, you know, accidentally watch an obscure Olympic sport on TV. <laughs> Wait. And the mere sight of an unknown athlete wearing your national colors gets you all excited. You know, your heartbeat goes up, your your stress level goes up, and you're standing in front of that TV and screaming with passion for that athlete to win. That's nationalism. It's, It's people happy to be together, happy to belong to a large national community. Why would it be wrong? You know, globalists, you may think of nationalism as an old 19th century idea that is destined to fade. But I'm sorry to tell you that the facts are not on your side when the World Value Survey asked more than 89,000 people across 60 countries how proud they felt about their country, 88.5% said very proud or quite proud. 88.5%! Nationalism is not going away anytime soon. It's a a powerful feeling that, uh, according to another study, is a strong predictor of individual happiness. It's crazy, but your happiness is more correlated with national satisfaction than we think you would expect like household income or your job satisfaction or your health satisfaction. So if nationalism makes people happy, why would anybody take it away from them? Fellow globalists, if, if you are like me, you may be attached to globalization for humanistic reasons and you may take great joy in some of its accomplishments since 1945. After all, major regions of the world have been exceptionally peaceful. Extreme poverty rates around the globe are trending down. And more than 2 billion people, most notably in Asia, saw spectacular improvements in their standards of living. But studies also show that globalization has a dark side. And uh, left on the side of the road, hundreds of millions of people on Western middle classes, with anemic income growth for more than two decades, possibly three decades, according to some studies. We cannot ignore this elephant in our room. If anything, our collective energy would be better used finding ways to fix this aspect of globalization instead of uh, you know, fighting this polarizing battle against nationalism. So now, the nationalists in the, in the audience, I have some crusty, non-binary nuggets for you. When I say the word globalist, what comes to your mind? Uh, Out-of-touch, 1% plutocrats? <laughs> or maybe the heartless, greedy Wall Street type, right? Or maybe people like me with multiple origins living in a big cosmopolitan metropolis. Well, you remember that world value survey that I mentioned earlier? It showed another fascinating finding. 71% of the world population agreed with the statement, I'm a citizen of the world. Do you know what it means? Most of us are simultaneously proud of our country and citizens of the world. And it gets even better. The citizens of the world in the survey show a higher level of national pride than the ones that rejected that label. So once and for all, being a globalist doesn't mean betraying your country. It just means that you have enough social empathy and you project some of it outside your national borders. Now I know that when I dig into my own nationalist feelings, One of my anxieties versus the globalized world is is national identity. How are we going to preserve what makes us special, what makes us different, what brings us together? And as I started thinking about it, I realized something really strange, which is that a lot of the key ingredients of our national identities actually come from outside our national borders. Like, think of the letters that we use every day. I don't know if you realize, but the the, uh, Latin script, the Latin alphabet that we use, has its origins thousands of years ago near the Nile River. It all started with, with a cow, just like this, that was captured by a scribe into an elegant hieroglyph. That hieroglyph was transcribed by a Semite in the Sinai into the letter Aleph. Aleph traveled with Phoenicians and reached the European shores in Greece, where it became Alpha, the mother of our letter A. So that's how an Egyptian cow became our letter A. (laughs) And same thing with the Egyptian house that became bait, beta, and B, and the Egyptian fish that became dalet, delta, and D. Our most fundamental texts are full of Egyptian cows, houses, and fish. (laughs) And uh, there are so many other examples. Like, take the United Kingdom and its monarchy, Queen Elizabeth II, German ancestry. The mottoes on the royal coat of arms, all written in French, not a single word of English. Take France and its, uh, you know, and its iconic Eiffel Tower. The inspiration, the United States of America. And I don't mean Las Vegas. I mean 19th-century New York. <laughs> this was the tallest building. In New York, in the mid 19th century, does it remind you of something? <laughs> and, and you may think of China as a self-contained civilization, protected behind its Great Wall, but think twice. The Chinese official ideology, Marxism, made in Germany. Uh, one of China's biggest religion, Buddhism, imported from India. India's uh, favorite pastime, cricket. Uh, I really love this quote from Ashish Nandi, who said, "Cricket." is an Indian game accidentally discovered by the British. (laughs) So, uh, you know, these are good reminders that um, a lot of what we love in our national traditions actually come from previous waves of globalization. And beyond individual symbols, there are whole national traditions that could not have existed without globalization. And the example that comes to my mind is a world-beloved national tradition, Italian cuisine. My friends, if you ever have a chance to go to a super authentic Italian restaurant that only serves ancient Roman recipes, my advice for you is, don't go. <laughs> You'd get very, very disappointed. No, no spaghetti, no pasta that really started in, in Sicily in the 8th century when it was under Arabian rule. No perfect espresso, no creamy cappuccino that came from Abyssinia via Yemen in the 17th century. And, of course, no perfect pizza Napolitana. How would you make it without the tomatoes of the New World? No, instead, you would be served probably a lot of porridge, some vegetable, mostly cabbage, some cheese, and maybe, if you're lucky, the uh, absolute delicacy of that time. Mmm, perfectly cooked, fattened dormice. <laughs> Thankfully, it was not a close tradition preserved by fanatic watchdogs. No, it was an open process, nourished by explorers, traders, street sellers, and innovative home cooks. And in many ways, globalization is a chance for our national traditions to be questioned, regenerated, reinterpreted, to attract new converts, to stay vibrant and relevant over time. So just remember this. Most of us nationalists in the world are globalists, and most of us globalists in the world are nationalists. A lot of what we like in our national traditions come from outside our national borders. And the reason we venture outside our national borders is to discover these other national traditions. So the real question should not be to choose between nationalism and globalism. The real question is how can we do both better? It's a a complex question for a complex world, that calls for creative, non-binary solutions. What are you waiting for?
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin, detailing not only some of the most prominent horrors of the incoming Brazilian president, but also how positively the financial media reacted to his election, who, what, why discussed the disconnection between the economics of globalism and the politics of it, Democracy Now! talked with Glenn Greenwald, who lives in Brazil, about the threat to democratic values and human rights under the new president. Counterspin had on Brian Baer to look ahead to what's next for Brazil. And finally, we just heard Juanice Cabaja's TED Talk about how globalism and nationalism can coexist. And now, as part of the wrap-up, a brief climate check, because climate change affects everything. As you already heard mentioned in the show, but is worth mentioning again, the incoming Brazilian president is essentially promising to destroy the Amazon rainforest, a critical carbon sink for the planet—just one example in the long-standing pattern of authoritarian governments being terrible for the environment. Also, I want to mention that members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips, but not about Brazil today. Today, we're going to talk a little philosophy and sociology as a way to understand many of the things going on in the world today, both large and small. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
9: Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York, and I'm calling to comment on your coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. After listening to not only your show, but several other progressives uh, take on the 2018 election. I thought it would be necessary to add some comfort as I tried to do prior to the election for fellow progressives. Although I do not count myself among your ranks, I do believe that you share many of the same values that I have. So, Let us first begin by saying that um, the appointment to leadership of members who are not overtly representative of our values, whether it's progressive or socialist as I am, should not be discouraging. Understand that you are dealing with members who are used to taking 10 years to accomplish a specific goal. Therefore, they are playing a game akin to chess. Over the next two years, they hope to tire you out so that everything that you hope for uh, the future will become tossed aside as progressives who you sent to the Congress who which is not uh, a progressive body or a body which tends to do radically different things without some emergency coming up to force them to do it. As you watch these people have to vote for things which the news media will spin as being anti-progressive to try to get you to become demoralized, to try to get you to look at the uh, election process as something that you should not be engaged in. As this occurs, remember, you are dealing with a process that has been implemented over the past 35 and 40 years. Therefore, you should not expect for change to occur overnight. It will take at least three two year election cycles for such change to be implemented and such change to really have a deep impact on not only the Congress, but the social structure being created by the Congress. That's one. Number two, I have recently listened to the statements made by many progressives about the congressman from New York, uh, Mr. Jeffries. And... This is something that uh, allow me to actually back up a little bit. The role of black people, particularly in the democratic party has never been something that we have discussed openly between the black community and the non-black community. And so this is something that I have not known how to broach with white progressives because so many progressives see themselves as allies and don't necessarily see the world as it actually is constructed, especially when it is uh, relating to black people. In the Democratic Party, the role of the black congressman has always been one of subservience. And the Democratic Party loves that role they do not want to change that role if they see somebody who is not going to fit that role and is trying to get into a leadership position like miss lee was they're not particularly against that as long as they believe they can control how much power that person exercises with miss lee now having a dramatic increase in progressives in the Congress, particularly progressives that hadn't been seasoned through the Democratic Party apparatus. There was a fear that her independence would be able to shine through incredibly. Mr. Jeffries is, if you parting a phrase, the more acceptable Negro to the Democratic establishment. He is the man who is going to toe the party line. They love that type of a black man. Mr. Jeffries is that type of a black man. You have to, as progressives, be careful of this because what the democratic party will do next time. And they did this with, um, uh, Ms. Abrams, uh excuse me, miss, um, Abrams in, uh, Georgia is they will present a face to you that looks progressive. And they will say, she is a woman of color, he is a woman of color. But if you listen to what they say, they are just another democratic robot. You can't get caught up in just looking at identity. You have to really investigate these people and stop them from using identity as a passport to progressivism. Thank you very much. Uh, Keep up the good work. Goodbye.
10: Hi Jay, this is Mary Lynn from Minnesota. Uh, Catching up on your wonderful work, and I just finished reading or listening to the New Rise of Hatred for an old target. Though I'm not Jewish, uh, I identify with pain of the Holocaust quite closely. There were 6 million Jews all through Europe that were killed in the gas ovens, and there were 3 million Poles. There are millions of Slavics and Czechs and Russians and Ukrainians as well. They're never noticed in this group. Oftentimes, you know, the Poles are the ones that are doing the killing. Well, yeah, there's always people that need to survive. I need to let you know that The Nazis didn't just go after Jews. They went over the Polish people, all kinds of races. And my grandmother's first cousin was a bishop in Lubruchin and um, and in Krakow. And he had disagreed strongly with the Pope, saying that the church was not holding to its tenet of loving all and caring for all. Um, My cousin actually hid Jewish people, uh, tried to protect them, Um, with the the things that he could do. I've read stories of people that have come to America that were hidden by him during the war and be able to survive later on. I also had another cousin who was a teacher near Auschwitz, where my family home is. And he was actually... lost his life in Auschwitz himself. Um, Auschwitz's first building was for non-Jewish people, Catholics, other religions whatnot, And they were killed too It just reminds me That um, When hate comes for one group It comes for all groups Sooner or later it's going to come for us And if we do nothing about it That hate will come for us too Take care Thank you for your wonderful show
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to finish up today, I just want to uh, add a comment from a listener that came in on the topic of privacy. You may recall I did a little commentary on privacy and I was distinguishing between governmental privacy, which usually has to do with security, corporate privacy, which usually has to do with convenience, and personal privacy, which I think I called social privacy is just sort of uh, the people around you knowing stuff about you and uh, and how those are all very different things and should be treated differently. Simon wrote in and uh, and had this to say. He said, uh, "Just listen to your bit on privacy, and here are my two probably rather German sense. And he's right. These are very uh, precise and well ordered thoughts. So number one, he says. Privacy and transparency are not exactly the same, but you could view them as two extremes on the political power spectrum. Individuals are vulnerable and deserve privacy, from being bugged, profiled 24-7, and or getting packaged up and sold to advertisers, while the government and large corporations already hold tremendous power and should themselves be as transparent as possible and be held accountable. Number two, concerning the nationwide tax release. Pausing, he, he's referring to uh, I believe it was Finland as a story that I was uh, telling as a, a part of the discussion of privacy, and they had the one day each year when everybody's tax returns are released, and so. Uh, On one hand, it seems like an individual breach of privacy, but on the other, there seems to be some social benefits to that. People were arguing that that was part of the reason why uh, they they were able to maintain uh, low levels of uh, income inequality, for instance, because if everyone knows what everyone else makes, it makes it so that you can sort of nip any instances in the bud where uh, inequality is starting to emerge, and, uh, and adjustments can be made, either at the corporate level or the governmental policy level. So continuing. Uh, concerning the nationwide tax release, you could then argue, which of the parties concerned loses more control slash power, the individuals whose tax returns are publicized, or the employers that may have to face some angry questions afterwards? I'm personally also leaning toward the latter. So in my eyes, it's more an act of transparency than a breach of privacy, unquote. And that's the end of uh, Simon's email. And I think that's an excellent way to describe it, that when you talk about an individual's tax returns, on the face, it immediately feels like a discussion of individual privacy. And then Sure, you can, you can weigh it against social benefit, but that, that ended up being in vague terms. Uh, well, there seems to be less income inequality and wealth inequality in a country where everyone releases their tax returns, but to be more precise about it and to explain exactly why that happens, this is a much better way to describe it, not on the individual privacy versus public or social good spectrum, but on the we demand uh, privacy for the vulnerable and transparency from the powerful spectrum, that is much clearer. And, and so in this example of uh, individual tax returns being released, what that effectively is, although it looks like in a, a breach of individual privacy, what it is, I think, in practice, and what Simon is saying, is that it's, it's more of a workaround to demand transparency from the powerful because – We actually discussed how some corporations, but very few of them, have open payrolls. And there seems to be a lot of benefits that come from that. And what this does at the national level is automatically opens up the payrolls of every company in the country. So yes, on the scale of who's losing more control or power, clearly The corporations are losing more control and power through this act of widespread uh, transparency, opening up the books of every corporation and what they pay every one of their employees. That's much more impactful than on any individual having their tax returns released, especially because if everyone has their tax returns released, then there's really nothing to be ashamed of. It's, it's kind of the difference between walking around town naked and walking around a nude beach naked. As long as everyone's tax returns are opened up to everyone, no one really loses anything, socially speaking. There's relatively little embarrassment to be had there, uh, contrasted with the major benefits of demanding transparency from the powerful. So, excellent point, Simon. Uh, well put, well structured, very precise. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash Left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all the